Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Jonathan Oliver. And this is part two of our uh, podcast covering the Doctrine and Covenants and its history. Thank you. So I, I wanted to just kind of go back into the context of our, our last podcast. We left off talking about the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, and we also had started into the lectures on faith. Yeah, and we decided we gave you that cliffhanger that had a story I wanted to tell you. Um um, speaking of the name of the Doctrine and Covenants, I, again, I always grew up just assuming that the reason why the word doctrine was in the Doctrine and Covenants was, well, this is the stuff you better follow, right? This is the eternal word of God. Um, this is the doctrine. They seem to be using the term Doctrine and Covenants uh, more in the 19th century version, and that is the word means teaching. That's that's really what it means. And so it, it makes sense that they would include these lectures on faith, as as Joseph said, these lectures that were delivered before a theological class in this place, or essentially an early Sunday school. Sunday school before you have Sunday school. And they clearly want to set it off from what are the revelations that come from God. So whoever the author of the lectures on faith is, I mean, even if, if someone says they're Joseph Smith, they want them to be separate. Now, I, I was going to tell you, I had a story on my mission. So I served in Wisconsin. Um, I always worry if people listening to this are in Wisconsin, they might feel like I'm, I'm, you know, unfairly representing their state. But probably there's no one listening in Wisconsin because there's only four members there. I'm just kidding. But um, that while I was there, I was in a uh, very rural branch, and um, there was a man in the branch who uh, was one of the few people who was able and willing to help us. We had a gigantic area. We had to drive our cars dozens of miles uh, we and, and we didn't have a car. So we had to have someone give us a ride to go, oh, we've got a, a, a member we need to go visit or we have an investigator 20 miles away. Well, that's not as easy to bike in a Wisconsin winter as you might think it would be in upstate Wisconsin. And so, you know, we had to get a ride. Well, one of the people who was willing to give us a ride was the first counselor in a branch presidency. And uh, I'll leave his name anonymous, I guess, just so, just so no one feels uh, unfairly. Uh, maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. Um, and he, uh, he, he w- w- it was just me and him riding in the car. We were on a team up. So my companion was with another member. And we had a long ways to drive. And it, actually, it wasn't the wintertime. It was the summertime. It was very hot. And his car had air conditioning but he didn't believe in using it uh, because it wasted too much of his gas mileage. And so I'm still just very grateful to have this ride. We are riding in the car. It's so hot in the car as, as we're driving in the summer. And it's just dead silence. I mean, just mile after mile, there is nothing. I've tried to bring up a few different things to talk about. He ain't talking. We're just driving in silence, burning to death in the car. And so... I finally do what every missionary does as their fallback. When you're desperately trying to engage a member, especially, you know, that's not in Utah, you, you know, if, if you're a missionary, members ask you, 
where are you from? How long have you been out? If you are asking a member, you ask them how they came to be converted to the church or when they joined the church. So that's what I ask them. I say, uh, uh, brother, so-and-so, you, uh, you know, how, how'd you uh, come to be a member of the church? You, uh, you know, read the book of Mormon and cause I'm trying to help him out cause he won't talk. I, you read the book of Mormon and, and just, you know, come to know that it was true. He looks over at me. He's like book of Mormon. Nah, book of Mormon never did nothing for me, <laughs> which, which is kind of a terrifying thing. Cause he's in the, he's in the branch presidency. And I said, well, what do you mean the book of Mormon never did nothing for? He's like, well, my wife kept trying to get me to read that book of Mormon. And it was funny. He always talked about it in like the third person as if he wasn't actually a member of the church, but he was the leader of the local church. He was at least in the, he was the counselor in the presidency. And he says, uh, my wife kept trying to get me to read that book of Mormon. And I tried, I tried, I tried several times. And honestly, I could take it or leave it. I could tell you right now, I could take it or leave it. This is becoming pretty concerning to me. I'm now wondering the, key, the keystone of our religion. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> it's apparently not. <laughs> and and I, now I'm worried a little bit. Like, is he going to drive down one of these country roads and leave me? I mean, is this how this happens in every movie that you ever see? As I'm riding with him, and he's telling me that he doesn't really believe in the Book of Mormon. Well, his. So I work up the courage to eventually say. So how did you come to be a member of the church? And he said, well, my wife kept trying to get me to read it, and it just couldn't get anything out of it. And then one day she came home from that Mormon church. It's so hilarious. He called it that Mormon church. It's literally his church. He's the leader of it. She came home from that Mormon church, and I saw she had another book. And I said, what is that? And the way he said it to me was super angry. <laughs> he was like mad when he said it. What is that? And I went over and I looked at it and I read the title. Jesus the Christ. No, no. <laughs> I read the title and it said. Truth restored. The Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine. He, he screamed the word doctrine. This guy hadn't talked the whole ride. Yells the word doctrine at the top of his lungs. The doctrine. I knew it was the doctrine. Because it said doctrine in its title. Only person I've ever met in my life who has no testimony at all of the Book of Mormon, but he believed in the Doctrine and Covenants so much that he would actually interrupt speakers in our sacrament meeting if they were presenting something that he thought could be better conveyed by something in the Doctrine and Covenants, he would just start shouting behind them from the stand, and we know that that's also true because of Doctrine and Covenants section 20. And that's the doctrine. And he, he just yell it out. I mean, it, it. Did you have people like four or five people in the branch and then like the one person like, amen <laughs> yeah. in the back. Yeah. We would have some people, uh, up, they would usually clap actually. But <laughs> at any rate, it was a, it was a fun time. I never had the heart to tell him, uh, mainly because I was terrified. Uh, actually, uh, brother so-and-so, uh, the, the term doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants isn't even a reference to what's in the Doctrine and Covenants anymore because the lectures on faith is what it was referencing and they, they aren't in there anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, for for lack of uh, uh, wanting to end up in, in that car ride again, I, I didn't tell him. But at any rate, that's, that's something very different that's in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835. So I want to kind of fast forward a little bit here and talk about what 
what happens in the subsequent editions. So first of all, one of the things that's changed uh, in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants is there's a, a massive expansion in the number of revelations. You go from 65 to 103. So the book is much more robust with the number of revelations alone, along with other changes. But this is the book that actually does, you know, in unsurprisingly, they decide to publish this one in Kirtland rather than in Missouri after what happened in Jackson County. And so this one is published and it becomes distributed. And this becomes the standard doctrine and covenants that members of the church will have with them all throughout Joseph's life. It, it is uh, widely distributed and it actually has a disproportionate impact in all of our understanding of church history. Why? Well, when they're writing the history of the church, they're writing what's called the history of Joseph Smith that later gets called the history of the church. So they're the same thing, just written different, uh, different names, essentially. Um, when they're writing the history of the church, they use the Doctrine and Covenants, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, very heavily as a source. They include all the sections in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants in the history, and they include them the way that they're presented in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so there are multiple places in the history of the church where there's actually an error in the Doctrine and Covenants that then gets repeated into the history of the church because they simply copy it straight over. Um, it also might be the reason why there are gaps in the history of the church. One of the things we, we've talked about before, but one of the things that we don't know is when Peter, James, and John appeared to Joseph Smith. And one of the reasons why we don't know is the history of the church doesn't cover it at all. You know, you, the history of Joseph Smith, it's, it's not in there. In fact, the history of the church jumps. It jumps from July of 1829 when you're having the three witness experience and when they're, they're you know, seeking out a printer to March of 1830 when the book is finished. Now we know, in fact, we read. That, on, sound, that sounds like my journal. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Like, yeah, it it's like, yeah. oh, uh, yeah, July, uh, you know, 2000, uh, 2017, and then 2019, maybe another entry. It's, it's especially best if your journal has in the entry of July 2017, I have recommitted myself that I am going to keep my journal very regularly and you know, <laughs> and then you leave off with the thought. You're like, okay, and I'll 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 talk about this in my next entry. And then yeah. it's like three years later. Like, oh yeah, what was I going to say? I don't even know. When this podcast comes to an end, that'll be the way I do it. I'll just leave it on this giant cliffhanger. I need to talk to everyone about the most important aspect of church history in our next podcast, and then we'll just never have another podcast. Because <laughs> the podcast gets canceled, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. canceled. Yeah, that's it. That's the end. We just fade to black. But anyway, um, this uh, the the, <laughs> the uh, reality is that there are no revelations that make it into the Doctrine and Covenants, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, from that time period. But in our last podcast, we actually read one of them. There was a revelation from January of 1830. So you can actually see that they aren't using the manuscript book of revelations to write the history of the church. They're using, which is much more readily accessible, the published copies of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so they they use the Doctrine and Covenants kind of as their guide. They go from revelation to revelation and a little filler here, filler between revelation to revelation to revelation. Well, between July of 1830, I mean, it's July of 1829 and March of 1830, there aren't any published revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. So the history of the church 
kind of just jumps to March of 1830 when you start to get more published revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. So, so actually the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants has a very disproportionate impact in our understanding of church history because it is the guideline by which our, um, our, our own church history, our narrative church history is, is, is written. I can think of a really good example of this is Oliver Cowdery, sorry, not Oliver Cowdery, Parley Pratt is called on a mission to preach to the Shakers. And uh, this is Doctrine and Covenants section 49. We, we had a whole podcast on this, right? But Parley Pratt, is, he, he's remembering this, reminiscing later when he's writing his own autobiography. He's reminiscing about something that happened 20 years ago. Right, this is this is a long time ago. He knows he went on a mission to the Shakers. He remembers that, but he doesn't remember all the particulars. And so, in his autobiography, what does he do? He just pulls open the do- the Doctrine and Covenants, looks at the date on the Revelation, and records it into his autobiography. What's the problem? The date in the Doctrine and Covenants is actually the wrong date. We we know now, and it's been corrected in the 2013 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants because of other historical resources through the Joseph Smith papers, right? But Oliver Cowdery essentially, uh, Oliver Cowdery, Parley Pratt, uh, he essentially perpetuates an error because he uncritically accepts what's in the published 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. And frankly, I think it's just a, a typographical error. I think they accidentally don't change the date uh, lettering off of the previous one they just printed, which was which was an earlier date, and so, but regardless of the reason why, what you have is Parley Pratt claiming that he was given a revelation from God to go preach to the Shakers weeks before he was even in Ohio, because that because by his own autobiography he wasn't there yet, but the revelation says it happened in March, so I guess I guess that's when it was, so. It, it has this disproportionate impact. So it's important to understand some some of the ways that, especially the early history of the church was written, is very much guided by that, by that book. It is going to be the book that throughout Joseph's life, when he's quoting the Doctrine and Covenants, it's the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. But he also recognizes as the church grows, as there are thousands of more members in the church by the end of his life, by, by 1844, you know, you are in the tens of thousands of members, not just the thousands of members. And there are not enough copies of the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants anymore. So they've already started preparing to publish the next edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is the 1844 version of the Doctrine and Covenants. Again, it's going to say that these revelations are carefully selected from the revelations of God, something to to let everyone know this isn't every revelation. But... It's not going to make very many changes. Joseph Smith is actually in the process of proofing the 1844 uh, Doctrine and meaning he's reading through it when he's murdered. Uh, John Taylor is the, the, the primary printer of it, but Joseph's actually going through those in the, in the weeks and months leading up to his murder. They add seven new revelations, revelations that have been received since the time of the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. They don't add all of them, we, we know that January 1838 one that we read last time, it's not included. Again, because they're they're selecting them. They decide they don't want to expand this very much. And then after Joseph Smith is murdered, what is included is that tribute to 
Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith that is today section 135 of your Doctrine and Covenants today. But it isn't included as a section in the 1844 Doctrine and Covenants. It's just included as kind of an addendum, as a, as a postscript, as, as a tribute is what they call it to Joseph and Hiram Smith. Again, without an authorship, we don't know who wrote it, but it is, um, it's added to the book, which already has the lectures on faith, which aren't revelations, and then this tribute, which at the time is not listed as a section of the Doctrine and Covenants. As well as the, it's like an epilogue. Of yeah, sorts. kind of exactly, and it's and it's written very shortly after Joseph's murder, and so it's just kind of shoved into the book at the very end, kind of kind of the way Mormon plugs the uh, plugs the, uh, the the small plates of Nephi in after he's already done his his abridgment of that part. Um, so there's not anything terribly different about it. It's actually not very much changed from the 1835 edition. Now. The edition that makes all the difference in the world is the 1876 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is the one that changes the Doctrine and Covenants from what it was before to something that's far more recognizable to you today. Brigham Young tasked several apostles, and and the lead apostle of this is Orson Pratt, to um, revise the Doctrine and Covenants. And they decide to go beyond the bounds of what had previously uh, constituted a revelation. So, for instance, in in the 1835 and 1844 Doctrine and Covenants, things were only included as sections if they were revelations that were received as revelations by Joseph Smith and he's dictating it off to a scribe and it's recorded in the Book of Commandments and Revelations. It is the standard type of revelation. The 1876, Orson Pratt realizes a couple things. So first of all, the most important thing that he does, as far as a historian's concerned, is he reorganizes the book into what he thinks is a chronological order. Now, I, I say what he thinks. He, he, in some cases, he has to guess because there aren't dates on some of these. So he has to just, I'm sure this is this time period. He guesses pretty well. I mean, it's, it's, he's inspired. But he organizes the book into something that it never was before. In the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, you could readily bounce from an 1829 revelation to an 1834 revelation, back to an 1828 revelation to an 1835. I mean, there, there, there was no rhyme or reason except for that there was importance placed upon you know, themes. So Doctrine and Covenants section two of the eighteen thirty five Doctrine and Covenants was your section twenty. So he rearranged effectively the hymn book by date that the song was created rather than the theme. Exactly. Yep. Instead of saying, look, here's all the ones on the sacrament, no, it was the date of creation. And so in the original Doctrine and Covenants, DNC one has always been the first, because that was God's revealed preface to the book of commandments that it was given by revelation to tell people what the book is. That's why doctrine and covenants section one has always been section one. It will always be section one. I don't, I guess I don't know the second part. Prophet might change that whenever, but it has always been in the first position because it's the introduction to the whole book. But the second section, which makes a lot of sense was actually doctrine and covenants section 20 because section 20 explains the basic beliefs of the church how people are baptized, how sacrament is conducted, and the basic offices of the church. 
it makes a lot of sense to have a revelation saying, you better pay attention to what God's about to do and have the next revelation be, here's how that church is done. But it also hurts your ability to understand the story. Now, if you're someone who lived through it, like Orson Pratt, well, you don't need someone to tell you how Joseph went from A to point B because you were there for it. But if you're a convert to the church from Denmark and you just arrived in Utah in the late 1860s, you don't know any of that. People will tell you and you'll get it anecdotally. But I think that's the great, the great genius of Orson Pratt's idea. If we rearrange the Doctrine and Covenants into a chronological order, then the book will read more like a book. Like a book. Where you start with God declaring that he's going to do some great thing, and the very next thing you do is you come to the angel Moroni speaking to Joseph Smith. Because that's the beginning, right, of, of, of Joseph receiving these revelations. And then you move to Doctrine and Covenant section 3, where Joseph's translating and he loses the pages. And then 4, and then 5, and on down the line. So you can actually watch line upon line and precept upon precept as the doctrine unfolds to Joseph Smith. I want, to hear, I want to hear the Saturday's Warriors song now. Just start singing. I, I, I don't yeah. even know it. You don't know the song? No, uh, my wife does. We should, Saturday's we should, Warrior, come on. This is, I, this, is I, yeah, I, this should be in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's not in the Doctrine and Covenants. <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> line upon yeah. line. Oh, yeah. precept on precept. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So you know yeah. this. You See, know I, feel you like, I feel like we just lost 30 to 40,000 subscribers because I didn't know that. Yeah. We don't even have that many. So, but, um, uh, so he's going to rearrange it and, and it makes the book much more, uh, it, it makes the unfolding of the revelations much more comprehend, uh, comprehensible, right? Instead of, you know, here's something that's on repentance and now here's something that's on faith and now here's something that's on missionary work and here's another thing on mission. Instead, it becomes watch as God unfolds his will to the prophet Joseph Smith, how he builds upon this and then upon this and then upon that. Well, as he's rearranging the book, one of the things he does is what you notice when it's chronological that you don't notice when it's thematic as much is there are some real gaps in our story that we talked about, right? With, with the 1835 doctrine and covenants with the church history. So, we know the angel Moroni appeared to Joseph. He quoted all kinds of things to Joseph. Joseph records them in his history, but they aren't in the Doctrine and Covenants. So what does Orson Pratt do? He and his committee, and I'm not just saying, look, Orson Pratt's in charge of this. It's not like Brigham Young's like, wait, what did he do? Brigham Young's approving this too. I mean, it's not, the, the church is doing this. I just want to give Orson Pratt his due for the time he puts in. He excerpts, a tiny portion of the of Joseph Smith history that Joseph Smith, you know, obviously dictated uh, part of it. He certainly read through it and revised it before it was published. Joseph is certainly a part of the creation of that. I mean, the only way we know any of the words that Angel Moroni said to Joseph is that Joseph told us because he's the only one awake in that room when that's going on. So, uh he excerpts this very small portion. Well, if I was if I was there, I would have woken up. Well, and you, I would have recorded it and captured the date and the time. Yes. And the, yeah. Well, that's uh, yes. Where where were you uh, uh, on that? Uh, you know, Samuel uh, when, or or Hiram or whoever's in the room with him. But the 
the the reality is he takes this very small portion of Joseph Smith history and he excerpts it and he creates section two. So you start now with God declaring in section one what this book is and why these revelations matter. And the very next section is the angel Moroni speaking to Joseph and telling him of the important things that are going to happen. Then you have uh, uh, these sections roll forward. Well, what's another gap that's in there? Well, John the Baptist comes and restores the authority to Joseph Smith. That's a pretty big deal. It's a big deal in our church today. It was a really big deal to them because it was the deciding factor of what, what makes us different. We believe God has given direct authority from John the Baptist. Well, that wasn't in one of the Doctrine and Covenant sections because it wasn't a section. It was an experience. It was recorded in Joseph Smith history, but it wasn't in a section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So again, Orson Pratt is going to excerpt a portion of John the Baptist speaking to, to Joseph Smith and place it into the Doctrine and Covenants, in, into this chronological order. That's now section 13 of our Doctrine and Covenants. So you can already see that they've decided to expand what constitutes a section or revelation. It's not just something where Joseph recorded it as a revelation in his life, but in fact, there's going to be other things that were not taken that at, 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 at the time. So for instance, section 109. Section 109 is the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. Joseph says he receives that dedicatory prayer by revelation. So there's no question that this is a revelation. There's no question it's from God. There's no question it's from Joseph. But it hadn't been included in previous editions of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so, even though it's a prayer, it's added as a section. Another thing that Orson Pratt and his committee does is they recognize that there are really important teachings of Joseph Smith that aren't in the Doctrine and Covenants because they were parts of letters that he wrote to the church, or they were things that were recorded in Joseph Smith's journal, but not as a revelation to the church. So a great example of this, one of my favorite sections, one of the most important sections of the Doctrine and Covenants is section 110. This is when they see Jesus you know, in the temple, and also they have the keys restored. Moses, Elias, and Elijah come and restore those essential priesthood keys. Well, that wasn't in the Doctrine and Covenants. It wasn't in the Revelation books. It was in Joseph Smith's journal. That's a pretty important thing. And so it was in his journal. I mean, Joseph's journal was already extant. They had his journal out there with him. And so they're going to go and take that from his journal and publish it in the Doctrine and Covenants so that everyone now has access to it. And so you see another aspect to canonization, or at least another consideration. If there's a teaching that you want everyone to have in the church, if there's a teaching that's essential, the only way, especially in 1876, that you are going to ensure that every member has it is if you place it in the canon. There isn't a Sunday school. There's not an. Uh, there's well, no gospel library. App. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can't go to, and there's not, you know, obviously there's no, uh, you know, you can't just go to churchofjesuschrist.org and, and look it up. And so. 
They would have gone to LDS.org back then. Yeah, yeah. right. LDS.org. Mor- Mormon.org, yeah. really. Yeah. Mormon.org. Helping hands. Um, they've got they've gone to multiple places. But I don't know how much that factors into these things. But it's not just Section 110. In fact, for many members of the church, and, and I've, I've conducted these kind of informal surveys and classes, if I had people write down, what's your favorite section of the Doctrine and Covenants? One of the ones that comes up top of the list most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, is section 121. This is Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. This is that anguish of the soul where he is crying out, you know, oh God, where art thou? Where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? It is Joseph at his most raw and his most emotional but this was something Joseph Smith wrote in a letter to the church. It's actually quite an expansive series of letters that contain DNC 121, 22, and 23. And the, there's beautiful teachings in it. You can tell how beautiful it is because for many modern Latter-day Saints, that section is their favorite section. It, it's the one that provides them the most comfort. But it was never recorded as a revelation. Even though Joseph Smith in the letter is saying, I prayed to God and God said, my son, right? I mean, so you're, you're getting this, this from Joseph. He's declaring that it's a revelation, but it was written as a letter to the church, not as a, you know, a revelation the way that other revelations were received. The letter is actually pretty extensive. And when we talk about the Mormon war in Missouri, you know, so you got to keep listening at least until we get to that. Uh, not today. I mean, some t- point in the future, I'll just keep putting it off. So you keep coming back each week and deciding, is this it? Is this more? Nope. It's not that, um, that it, it, it this, this, this letter is so important, um, that Orson Pratt decides to excerpt portions of it and then print them as separate sections in the 1876 Doctrine and Covenants. There are certainly major portions of it that he leaves out. And so that's, you know, that's also a factor too. Um, frankly, the way that it is written now, we tend to focus much more on Joseph worrying about his own suffering because that's the part of the, of the letter that's included in the section of the Doctrine and Covenants. But if you read the full letter, Joseph is much more concerned with how much the Latter-day Saints generally are suffering. His own suffering is certainly part of it, but it's the other people that are suffering that really hurts him, that really causes him to cry out to God. At any rate, um, that section is, those sections are added from letters as opposed to, um, as opposed to sections that were always received and recorded as revelations. Now there are other revelations too that are added. So for instance, Doctrine and Covenants section 87, which we spent some time on in a previous section, uh, a previous podcast, on the coming of the Civil War, they had not published that in the Doctrine and Covenants for very judicious reasons. They worried that if they published that revelation, they would be uh, attacked by their enemies for trying to foment rebellion in the United States and being not good citizens. And so they know it. They pass it around to each other. We have all kinds of copies of it. And it actually gets printed in the Pearl of Great Price in 1851. So we print it before the Civil War. Um, 
but after the Civil War, it kind of becomes like, well, I guess we don't have to worry about making anyone mad anymore. And and they move it from the Pro of Great Price to uh, to the 1876 Doctrine and Covenants. Of course, one of the major big ones is Doctrine and Covenants section 132 is the revelation on both eternal marriage and plural marriage, especially. This had been received in private. Plural marriage was not publicly taught to the church in Joseph Smith's time. It was being taught to a very small circle of Joseph Smith's closest associates. Um, And so it was a private revelation. It existed. We have multiple accounts of its existence, but it wasn't publicly proclaimed and it wasn't included in the 1844 uh, Doctrine and Covenants. And is this, is this why there's like some argument with like uh, the, the community of Christ and other denominations like that, where they're saying, Oh, this was, this was taught by Brigham, not Joseph. Absolutely. It's not part of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so it's easy for someone to add, well, you just manufactured that you made it up later. Now, of course, the reality, the historical reality is, is that, even historians from that faith group at this point acknowledge and admit that Joseph Smith was teaching and practicing plural marriage. So the reality that Joseph was teaching and practicing it kind of makes the argument that DNC 132 is manufactured later a a less powerful argument. Because even if you say, even if Doctrine and Covenants section 132 were a later manufacturer, it wouldn't actually change the fact that Joseph is teaching and practicing plural marriage in Nauvoo. Um, but yeah, that's certainly there are there are uh, offshoot groups uh, from our uh, our faith that make this uh, argument all the time. In fact, modern um, there are modern uh, offshoot groups. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the more modern apostate groups today makes the claim that Joseph Smith never taught or practiced plural marriage. That Brigham Young invented that. Now they make that claim utterly ahistorically. I mean. It's not just me as a Latter-day Saint saying that Joseph Smith taught and practiced plural marriage. It's every historian who has a degree who has access to the documents. And so it that he didn't practice it at all. Look, we can have all kinds of arguments about what that meant that he was practicing it. Uh, certainly there are some uh, historians from, say, the community of Christ that you referenced that will say, well, he practiced it, but he realized it was a mistake and he was going to try to stop it and, 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 you know, before he died. And I can understand why they say that. But that's not the same thing as saying he didn't teach it or practice it at all. That's a, that's a pretty big difference between, oh, I taught it, but I didn't mean to, and Brigham Young made this up when he moved to Mexico. That Those aren't the same arguments. And so... It's included that plural marriage is already being publicly taught, certainly publicly practiced um, in the early 1850s and then declared uh, to the church throughout the early 1850s. So it's not really a surprise to members of the church. It's been quoted. DNC 132 has been quoted multiple times up to that point. But here it is now canonized in this next edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. One last thing I want to focus on before we move on from this uh, edition is the one of the key differences or, or changes that's made is that Doctrine and Covenants section 136 is added to the 1876 Doctrine and Covenants. This is the revelation that Brigham Young received at Winter Quarters. Why does that matter? Well, because there's a pretty big distinction between all of these teachings, you know, uh, revelations, letters written by Joseph, 
all coming from Joseph Smith, and now another prophet having the ability to receive revelation that isn't just good counsel, that isn't just, oh, yes, thank you for telling us you know, how much beans we need to pack on our trip to the West. No, the words of God that are canonized as the words of God in the scriptures. So Doctrine and Covenants section 136 greatly expands what can be a section of the Doctrine and Covenants because it doesn't have to be a teaching of Joseph Smith. A subsequent prophet can receive a revelation that can also be part of the canon. And that's what DNC 136 does for us. Now, one interesting aspect of uh, and a major change to Doctrine and Covenants, uh, uh, the 1876 edition, is the uh, clarifying of code names that were in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. These had been perpetuated in the 1844 Doctrine and Covenants, and frankly, they are pretty difficult to understand. So explain, explain that just for a moment for those that may not be familiar, like like code names, what, where, why, why, yeah, why were so they used? Yeah, so in these various sections, there are code names that are used for, um, for people that are mentioned in these revelations. It, it's especially the revelations between Doctrine and Covenants section 78 through 105. These Many of these revelations are referencing church leadership positions and especially um, the, the United Firm, which is a, 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 an organization designed to further both the business and religious interests of the church. Um, and, and you have people that are members of this, like you know Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Cowdery. And they use code names to reference them rather than uh, uh, their actual name. So, for instance, in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 78, um, when it comes to uh, uh, reference uh, Joseph Smith, it calls him Gazalem. So, it, you know, let my servant Gazalem, not, not let my servant Joseph, right? Um why is it doing that? Well, here's another one. Section 103, right, is is instead of let my servant Joseph, is let my servant Baruch Ale. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that. Barak, Baruch Ale is, is how it is in uh, uh, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. So here's an example of how it, it sounds in uh, what was se- section 78 with these code names. So here I'm using this one because there are various code names that are added in here. And now... Verily thus saith the Lord, it is expedient that all things be done unto my glory, that ye should, who are joined together in this order, this is a reference to the United, uh, the, this united firm, or in other words, let my servant Ahashadah and my servant Gazalim or Enoch and my servant Pelagorim sit in counsel with the saints which are in Zion, otherwise Satan seeketh to turn their hearts away. So, you can tell that you probably don't know anyone named Pelagorum from the early church history, no matter how much church history you've studied. And, and that was this, this code name for Sidney Rigdon. Many of these code names have their roots in some of Joseph Smith's study of Hebrew that he'd already undertaken. Some of them have their roots in Gazlum, for instance, is from the Book of Mormon, right? That's from Alma 37, talking about the stone that God would uh, prepare for the translation of the records. 
you. So uh, this this is how it was published then in the 1844. Yes. Just, yep. These are that would be miserable to read. <laughs> well, you wouldn't know exactly. And let my servant. Um, I'm guessing that Ahashda. I don't know who that is. Um, Maher Shalal yeah, Hashbaz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Destruction is imminent from Isaiah. But um, uh, the the reason for doing it is they are being inundated with people that are trying to file lawsuits against the church, especially with things that are regarding their their uh, their firms, the, the United firm that's created, the literary firm that's created. Um, and this is actually a calculated tactic. As we talked about in a previous uh, podcast, Eber Howe, the leader of this kind of anti-Mormon uh, sentiment in the Kirtland area, he he brags about this. We undertook every means and filed lawsuits to stop them. So how did they try to deal with the fact that all of these frivolous lawsuits are essentially being way, you know, uh, they're being filed against them for the sole purpose of costing them money, costing them time, and costing them, uh, you know, th- their ability to focus on other things. So they decide when they publish these revelations that have direct reference to these kind of joint venture uh, uh, shared resources like the United Firm, that they will obscure the names that the Lord commands in that text. In a way, knowing that, look, the people who know will know who this is talking about. And in 1835, you knew as a Latter-day Saint who the leaders of the United Firm were. That that wasn't a big deal. You knew that. But as you already kind of pointed out, you know, in 1844, if you're a brand new convert from England, you don't know who Pelagorum is. And you'd have to go around asking people to figure out who it is. Well, so in 1876, Orson Pratt is going to supply some of the code names, actual names in there. He won't do it for all of them, but for some of them he'll put in. This is actually Joseph Smith. So when it says Enoch here, it means Joseph Smith. I mean, did this ever create problems? You know, like fast forward, you know, uh, now 50 more years after that, it's like, wait, do who, who is this person? Do we even have a, a, yeah, the person that knew died. Well, and so that is one of the issues. In fact, some of the names that we have supplied are supplied because of, uh, they're supplied because W.W. Phelps is saying, oh no, this is what, who these code names are. And so we kind of have to take, you know, well, he says he was there for this, and he says this code name was for this person. In some cases, you have the original manuscript. Yeah, well, not the original, but an early copy of the Revelation before they insert code names, and that makes it a lot easier because you're like, oh, well, it says Joseph right here, and so you just go with it, right? So um, those code names actually stay in the text until until uh, 1981 when they're going to r- remove them. So they used to be in the text with uh, with the you know, the parentheticals next to it saying, you know, who it actually was. Um, because the question of, well, do we alter? Because that's in the original Doctrine and Covenants. Pelagorum is in the original Doctrine and Covenants. So if you take it out, you're actually altering the original Doctrine and Covenants, even though the fact that Pelagorum was in there in the first place as a, you know, as a code name for Sidney Rigdon was already not original to the Revelation. The revelation didn't say, let my servant Pelagorum. The revelation said, let my servant Sydney. But once things are printed, as I'm sure you're all well aware, they gain a great deal of power. Am I okay with changing the scriptures? 
for many Latter-day Saints, this is a really difficult question for them, uh, especially because we live, if you live in, you know, if you live in Europe or uh, in the United States or Canada, you're probably mostly surrounded by very Protestant thought. And for Protestants, the idea of altering scripture is, well, that's the last thing you would ever do. And so we sometimes kind of uh, take that upon us. You know, even in our last podcast, when I talked about Joseph Smith altering the Book of Mormon in 1837 by making it more easily read, making it more readable, my guess is some of you had a little bit of heartburn saying, wait a minute, I I don't know if I'm okay with that. And this this probably comes from like the things like, oh, to him that, you know, adds or takes away from this book, God will add, you know, the plagues, you know, that kind of thing. And Moses Moses talks about that as well. Once you say that the as many protestants do at least in joseph smith's time all protestants said this but but once you say that all truth only comes from the bible once you say that well then the actual words that are on those pages matter a lot because that's the only place truth can come from well while latter-day saints you know we many of early saints converted from protestantism most of them did and they brought that kind of idea of inerrancy with them, Joseph Smith never seems to subscribe to that at all. He believes that the purpose of a revelation is to help people connect with God. What is God's will for you? And if I go back later and modify what this revelation says so that you better understand what God meant when he gave it to me, well, then that's what I'm going to do. For instance, there are some there are some uh, uh, offices in the church that aren't there at the time that Joseph first receives the revelation. Well, then the Lord gives the office of the seventy later. So you can either go back and alter that revelation to include the office of the seventy, or have people jump all over the place to find the different offices in the church. Well, it makes much more sense to just simply put it in there. And that's how Joseph seems to use most of his revelations. That's why he edits both the revelations and the Book of Mormon. Brigham Young is going to talk about this. And I know we've, we've probably said this before, but in a meeting with Joseph Smith, he, he, he says very emphatically that I would not be bothered if Joseph Smith were to translate the Bible 30,000 times. And every time it would be different in some respects. And the reason why, he says, is because when God speaks to his people, he always speaks to them according to their current light and knowledge. If we believe in continuing revelation and that God speaks to us where we're at, then that means where I'm going to be at tomorrow isn't going to be the same place that I'm at today. And Joseph generally thinks that the more important thing is that you understand the idea. Not that you are, you know, married to where the comma might be or might not be. That's that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, do you understand God's will for you? Now, so you're saying that the first strength of youth pamphlet that I grew up with, it, it, and uh, there's the new one, and it's like when it talks about like R-rated movies or this or that, like that. It's, <laughs> that yeah, I, I think that we follow what our current prophets teach us. I mean, and that's. That's the whole point of continuing revelation is if you're trying to prove that God has always taught everything always the same in the past, you're going to be quite disappointed because the very fact that we believe in continuing revelation means 
that there are things that God will eventually reveal that we don't know right now that are absolutely true. And what will happen when he reveals those things? Are we going to reject them because, well, God's never taught that before. Yeah, he hasn't taught that before. He hasn't taught that before because it was just now revealed. Let's talk about the next uh, edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. So 1876 is groundbreaking. Like I said, it's essentially the most important one because it changes what the Doctrine and Covenants is, what can be included in the sections. But there's other editions. So for instance, 1921 is the edition that, you know, most everybody's grandparents would have grown up uh, uh, reading their whole lives. Um, this would have, this was the, the edition that was in circulation when I, you know, when I was a three-year-old. Okay. I, I wasn't reading a ton of doctrine and covenants as a three-year-old, but, um, it's, it's the one that my dad would, would be teaching out of. It was the scriptures that he had was this 1921 edition, because it's the edition of the doctrine and covenants for, uh, you know, essentially, you know, 60 years of the church for, for most of the 20th century. One of the things, major things it does is it actually removes the lectures on faith from the doctrine. Yes, that that can be a very uh, hard one for people. Um, And even today, people will say, well, why was it removed? Well, if you remember, the lectures on faith are these theological lectures that are delivered primarily in, in 1832 and 33 in early church. This is before any of the major aspects of revelation and doctrine have been received. I mean, so there are certain things in the, in the lectures on faith that aren't as accurate anymore because God's revealed more. So if the lectures on faith talk about how, you know, to go to heaven, you have to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy ghost and endure to the end. Well, that was true in 1833. It just wasn't true anymore by 1844 or by 1921. Now, to go to the celestial kingdom, you we now know that there is temple covenants that need to be made, that there are uh, further requirements beyond those in, uh, initial ones. There's not really any commentary for the reasons why it was received, though. So really what we're doing is speculation. There are some back uh, room discussions about the reasons why, and there are certainly people who speculate today about the reasons why. But in any case, they're removed from the Doctrine and Covenants. The um, other addition is that Official Declaration 1 is added to the Doctrine and Covenants not as a section, but as official declaration one. Well, it's official declaration. Is, is that. They don't have it as one because that makes it sound like they're planning on a second one, which they don't know yet. But it again changes that, that format that you can have both sections of the Doctrine and Covenants as revelations and also separate revelations that you're, you're setting off as this declaration, which of course ends plural marriage. In 1981, there is a massive restructuring of of the scriptures generally. And uh, for those of you who are wondering, I I, I can already hear the questions. Well, do you think they'll ever add any other sections to the Doctrine and Covenants? Well, in 1981, they actually add three revelations to the Doctrine and Covenants, two of them as sections to the Doctrine and Covenants. First, section 137. Section 137 is that beautiful revelation that Joseph Smith receives when he in vision sees the celestial kingdom 
prior to the, to the uh, dedication of the Kirtland temple, he sees the celestial kingdom and sees his brother Alvin in it. And that's when he marvels. We've talked about that. I marveled that he'd obtained that kingdom because he hadn't been baptized. And if you have to be baptized by proper authority to go to the celestial kingdom, Alvin can't go. But then Joseph receives this revelation saying, actually, anyone who would have received it can go. And, and it's beautiful, but it was only in Joseph Smith's journal. And so in 1981, the, 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 committees and the prophet decide that that teaching is so important that we are going to add it as a section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And I'm so glad that it's beautiful. Then also uh, picking up from DNC 136, where Brigham Young received a revelation that was now scripture for the church. Doctrine and Covenants section 138 received by Joseph F. Smith. That's his, his vision of, of how the Lord organized uh, the spirit world after his death. That vision of Joseph F. Smith was well known in the church by this time. It had been quoted multiple times in conference, ramping up as more and more people knew about it. He'd received it in 1918. But it wasn't until 1981 that the determination was made that this is so important that this revelation needs to be canonized. And so you get yet another revelation as a section of the Doctrine and Covenants that is not from Joseph Smith. And then lastly, official declaration two. So now we're going to number them because now we have one and now we have two. Uh, extending um, the rights of the priesthood to all worthy male members of the church, as well as the temple blessings to all members of the church without uh, any restrictions uh, regarding race. And that, that revelation... Uh, received by President Kimball and and in, endorsed by um, the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, is then printed as part of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's it's not an addendum to it. It is part of it. Those official declarations are considered part of the Doctrine and Covenants. Lastly, um, I should say, if you're no 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 no, we got to make sure we get the maps in here. Uh, no, okay. that that maps. got me through. <laughs> Many, so many, many sacrament meetings. It's true. They added maps. And, and the 1981 edition of the maps in those scriptures, I studied those maps like crazy. Honestly, the maps in the 1981 edition have at least part of my uh, road to studying history. Because just like you said, as I was in a terrible lesson, much like the one you're in right now, uh, I I would often just pull open the Bible maps and be like, oh, let's let's Where study about, go today. Yeah, you know? let's study about the kingdom of Israel. Oh, look, it was uh, taken over 721. That makes sense. You know, I'd be mean, just uh, covering it. And so, oh, 587, the Babylonians. Okay. Um, but yeah, those maps, there's obviously a lot of things added as far as uh, indexing and footnoting. And, and they'd been added really since 1921, where it started to look similar to what we have with a section heading and things like that. But you all know recently that in 2013, the church obviously made many other changes to the Doctrine and Covenants in its 2013 edition. They don't add any new sections, but they do add explanatory materials, introductions to both official declarations, helping contextualize them and explain them. They change the dates 
of multiple revelations because through the Joseph Smith papers research, they now knew that this revelation that we thought happened in uh, in 1833 was actually a revelation from 1830, you know, the, the, and that changes the context of it. Um, so many of the section headings were changed. Only in one place do they change the spelling of someone's name in the actual text itself. Um, but when people ask, will there be other was it, changes? Was it Simon's writer? It was. <laughs> It wasn't Simon's Rider. Uh, it was not that one. We'll talk about that one someday, um, where that uh, idea even comes from. But um, it's it's actually the uh, the the one time thought to be Baptist, but now known to be Methodist minister. That's in in uh, Doctrine Covenant section thirty nine and forty. Um, they they changed the spelling of his name. Um, Again, because we have better sources. I mean, I, I mentioned one of those. Doctrine and Covenants section 49 had the wrong date, had a March date, and it just kept being repeated as March, as March, as March. But the earliest manuscript of that revelation listed as a May revelation. And so they made the change to put that date right. A lot of times the changing in dates doesn't make any difference. But sometimes it makes a really big difference in the context Section 19, for instance, was always listed as an 1830 revelation after the Book of Mormon was published, which was powerful, but it also didn't make a whole lot of sense because why is God chastising Martin Harris, telling him to pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon when in fact the Book of Mormon's already been paid for by his property? He's already mortgaged it in 1829. Is he just telling him don't whine about it anymore? I mean, what's he saying to him there? Well, uh, again, going back to earlier uh, manuscripts, the determination was made that that was an 1829 revelation. So instead of a revelation where Martin Harris is complaining about having had to pay for the Book of Mormon, it's instead the revelation that causes Martin Harris to actually pay for the Book of Mormon. He's, He's hesitating to do it. God tells him to impart his property to pay for the printing of the book of Mormon, yea, even all of thy property. And and he does it. That's exactly what he does. So in some cases, the changing of the dates and uh, the context really does make a difference. Another uh, great example of this is Doctrine and Covenants section 74. This was undated before, and because it was next to other sections that were related to the translation of the Bible, our section heading before simply said, oh, this was uh, relative to the translation of the Bible. Why? Because it's talking about infant baptism that had been justified by uh, by Corinthians in the, in the New Testament. Well, it makes sense that, well, they're translating the New Testament. They have questions about infant baptism. They have questions about this section. Ah, no wonder they, they, they received this revelation. So it was a good guess. I understand exactly why they guessed and said, oh, this was part of the Bible translation. But with the earliest manuscript of that revelation, what did we find? That it's actually a revelation from 1830. And it's actually from from Palmyra. Meaning, this is a revelation right next to Doctrine and Covenants section 22. Our church is pretty unique in the sense that it is advocating not just that baptism is good or that baptism is a symbol or that baptism is something you do because Jesus told you to do it, but that it's something you do 
because it's necessary for exaltation, either in this life or the next, right? Well, when you teach to a Protestant world that baptism is essential, you're going to very quickly have lots of questions such as, what if I've already been baptized? Which is what Doctrine and Covenants section 22 is. And the answer is, you got to get baptized by proper authority. And it seems like now we know that Doctrine and Covenants section 74 was in that same vein. It was at the same time in those early days of the founding of the church, people saying, okay, I know I have to get rebaptized if I was already baptized, but what about infants? If baptism is so essential, then shouldn't I have my infant baptized? Back to that old question of infant baptism, which of course, you know, the Book of Mormon already weighs in pretty heavily on. Um, and and this revelation, again, reiterates that, that, that infant baptism is not, is not the way that God expects baptism to happen. Will there be other changes to the Doctrine and Covenants? Hopefully more maps. Yeah, I, we need more maps. Obviously, it's the only thing keeping Jonathan in the church. Uh, it's probably the only thing keeping you awake during this podcast. I, I, I obviously don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not even close to one. But if you view the history of the Doctrine and Covenants, the general trend is that as revelations are received, sections are are added. Now, sometimes they're not added for 60 or 70 years after they were received, like Joseph F. Smith's vision of the redemption of the dead. So it's possible that either some of these earlier revelations we talked about from Joseph Smith that were never included, or perhaps later proclamations, like maybe the living Christ will be added as, a, as an official declaration. I don't know, and I'm not the one who makes those decisions, but I would certainly not be stunned if in my lifetime there aren't new sections, new revelations added to the Doctrine and Covenants. The intent was for it to be this living canonical book, and, and, and it is. The most important part of all of this, of course, is that these revelations are the Word of God. These revelations were received by prophets, primarily Joseph Smith, but also Brigham Young, and, 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 and Spencer W. Kimball, and Wilfred Woodruff. And these revelations, we can pray about and know that they are the Word of God. Do you think the two-hour church will be a revelation? What's that? The, 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 the oh, two-hour wow. church, like make that a section? I think they'll wait until it's a one-hour church and then make that. The, well, we had that during during the pandemic. Yeah, I, was, well, yeah. I'm hoping we eventually get down to you know 20-minute church and, uh, you know... <laughs> The, the reality is, as you have a church as continuing revelation, there will be further light and knowledge that's received. And some of that will likely rise to the level where the church decides to canonize it as a section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So I'm, I'm, I've got my favorites, the ones that I hope happen, right? I can't wait to see that January revelation someday be in the text. But even if it isn't, you can still access these things on josephsmithpapers.org. You can go and read all of these revelations that Joseph Smith received that were never included in the Doctrine and Covenants. So hopefully this helped you understand the book that you've been studying. You might be saying to yourself, where were you in January? Well, we weren't broadcasting yet. Um, and hopefully you'll join us uh, next week as we talk an, about another aspect of early church history. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. 
If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.